Good morning, everybody. This is the week of Thanksgiving. A lot of us are going to be spending time with family this week, and that can be a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, I hope all of you are going to get to have a wonderful Thanksgiving feast uh, and that you will uh, eat as Jesus would eat um, and just let that all kind of sink in, maybe drive you to your Bibles. But I think on this Thanksgiving week, we do well to give God thanks. And so would you join me? Let's give God a prayer of thanks. Heavenly Father, thank you for the blessings that you give us. First of all, that you love us. You give us grace, you give us forgiveness, you give us peace, you give us joy. Thank you. Thank you that we get to live in this country with great freedom. Thank you, Father, for our families, for our friends, for the prosperity that we know in this time. We live better than almost anybody in history. But Father, thank you for hope and the promise of eternity. And thank you most of all for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Once, yay, that's a good prayer. <laughs> so uh, once a year I do something with um, our kids where they get to ask me questions. And it's really fascinating. Everybody in the, about the first grade, from the first grade about, about the fifth grade, they always have questions about what happens when you die. That's what they want to know. What happens when you die? And some people believe that when you die, um, that's it. That's all there is. There's nothing else. Um, Those people are in the minority in terms of uh, historical movements of people. And if I'm a little distracted, the little boy who just said, yay, was my grandson. (laughs) It's like... I'm thankful for him. Okay, but let me get my head back in the game here. (laughs) Where am I? We're talking about what happens when you die. Okay, there are some people who say that's it, that's all there is. Most people throughout history, however, have believed there is something beyond death. And there's a verse in the Bible that explains this. It is in Ecclesiastes chapter three. uh, And it's Ecclesiastes 3.11, where we are told he, that is God, has also set eternity in the human heart, and yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. In other words, God has created in all of us an awareness of eternity. You think or you're aware of eternity, even whether you believe in God or not. I heard a story about an atheist man who lost his wife, he loved her very much, and as he stood at her grave, he said, how I wish there was a heaven. Now, where did he get that thought? I believe that thought came because God created every human heart with a longing for eternity. That's the way we're made. Now, the second part of this verse is also real important because it says that we can't comprehend eternity. You and I tend to think in terms of years. We think in terms of months and weeks. But in eternity, there is no time. There's no time in eternity, which means... (laughs) However far in the future you can think, eternity is farther. And if you think about this a whole lot, you'll start to need some Tylenol because your head will hurt. That's the vastness of eternity. Now, given that God has set eternity in our hearts, he's given us that idea, that framework, what is beyond death? 
what lies beyond? The difficulty in answering this question is the lack of evidence. According to Christian thought, there's only two people who have ever been dead for an extended amount of time and then come back to life. Now, we do have stories about people who have died on the operating table. They may be gone for an hour, an hour and a half, but then they all come back. But in Christian understanding, only Lazarus and Jesus have ever been dead more than a short time and then come back to life. Lazarus left us no testimony of what that was like. I think that's because Lazarus thought this is too wonderful to even tell about. But Jesus did die literally on the cross and come back to life after an extended period of being dead. And we then look to his testimony about what life is like beyond death. So if you have a Bible, turn to 14th chapter of John, the 14th chapter of John, verses one through three. We're gonna take this verse at a time. These are the words of Jesus to his disciples. You probably have heard these verses at funerals, but they're actually meant for our daily living. John 14, one says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Now Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Why are their hearts troubled? Well, an hour before he says this, he's told them, Peter, you're gonna deny me three times. One of you of the 12, you're gonna betray me. And besides all of that, every one of them can sense death in the air. The tension was mounting between Jesus and the religious authorities. They could sense that they were on a collision course and it was a life and death situation. Their hearts are troubled. Now, what, what troubles your heart about death? Truth is, most of us don't think about it. We don't think about it until it's right in our face. Either someone we love has been told that they are gonna die, or we ourselves have heard the tragic news, and then we start thinking about life after death. Uh, I had a friend when I was in my 40s who called me. He, he and I were the same age. We had our kids all kind of lined up about the same age. He called me and he said, Clay, I've got terrible news. I said, what is it? He said, I've just been to the doctor and he told me I have pancreatic cancer. Now this was not my finest moment of empathy because I said, no. And he said, yeah. I said, no, that can't be. See, I, I can think about cancer being for old people, and we weren't old. And he couldn't have cancer because he was my age. I did his funeral a year later. And when you have somebody your own age that you care about going through death, then you start to think about life and death. Now, before Jesus goes any further, he makes another one of his audacious claims. You believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus, again, is saying, God and I, we are the same. So you believe in God. Belief is believing in someone enough that you trust what they say and you depend on it. And we do this all the time. Right now, I'm trusting this platform to hold my weight. It's doing a pretty good job. It has now for a number of years. 
Jesus knew that his disciples had learned to trust God. And when he says this, he's reminding, him of all, reminding them of all the things that he had done that proved that he was from God. He said, you believe in God, believe in me. Believe in what I'm about to tell you about eternity. To believe in Jesus means you understand that Jesus is part of God's plan for your life. That it was God's plan for Jesus to die on a cross. It was God's plan for him to be resurrected. It was God's plan for you to be able to have access to him, to have eternal life. If you repent and believe, totally put your trust in Jesus. That's Jesus' work. Thus, we could translate verse 1, don't be agitated. Trust God, trust me, how we tell you to live and what we tell you about what lies beyond. Now Jesus is gonna start unveiling this, verse two. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? Now you might wonder why the NIV, the New International Version, translates this as rooms instead of the old King James Version, which translated it as mansions. There's a reason why. Let me kind of give you a little bit of the background. William Tyndall was the first person to ever translate the Bible into English. About 1525, he published the first translations. He translated it from Greek, Hebrew, and using the Latin Vulgate as his guide. When they originally translated the Latin Vulgate, way back in about 400, 500, 600 uh, AD, they looked at this passage in Greek and it had the word monae, monae. And the word referred to these little resting places. There were, in fact, actually, it was around the temple, these little niches, caverns that were carved into the walls of the temple. And if you were a pilgrim to Jerusalem and you needed a place to spend the night, that was your Motel 6. You could go in there and they left the light on for you and you could just rest. Now that's important, we'll come back to that. In Latin, I know I'm taking you through a whole etymology here, but hang with me. In Latin, the word monia translates as mansione, from which the French get manchon. And when Tyndall came to it, he translated it as mansion. Because remember, every translation has a bias, and Tyndall lived in the 16th century, and poverty was the norm, and so the idea of having your own mansion was so appealing. But that's not what Jesus is really saying. God does not want you to have a mansion in his subdivision. Jesus says, our heavenly father has prepared a room for you in his house. Because you get to actually belong to God's family. You're a child of God. You just think with me. When you get an overflow crowd in for Thanksgiving, who stays in the hotel? The grandchildren? No, my friends. The children? No. That lost uncle who gets on your nerves? Yes, he goes to Holiday Inn Express. Right? God loves you so much that he wants you with him. And Jesus says he has prepared a place for you. 
Now listen, all three of my kids, when we were expecting them, we prepared a place for them. I was told this room is not the right color. I didn't see anything wrong with it. But it had to be painted. We had one of those little topper pieces of wallpaper, had little rabbits on it. They got a special bedspread that matched that little wallpaper strip up there. They had sheets that matched it too. We prepared space for them, bought them furniture that they would outgrow in about two years. Now we did that for the first one. When the second one came, I thought, we're done, we're ready, we're here. Guess what? No, we had to prepare a whole nother room for the second one. And when we came to Sumter, we bought a house that was big enough for a third one and decided we didn't want one. And God said, surprise. And here I am going to paint another room to prepare because these are my children. They belong in my house. I want to prepare a place for them. That's what your heavenly father wants for every person on this planet. And believe me, he's got room in heaven for everyone. I heard of a church one time, and this is not great theology, but it's great sentiment. They said their goal as a church was to make God build a bigger house. I like that picture. Now, this, the reason this is so important is because it's a reminder that heaven is not about you. It's about being with your heavenly father. It's about being in his house. The reason this matters is because some people think, well, when I die, I get to be an angel. No, no, no. An angel is a different order of being. You don't become an angel when you die. Some people think, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to get to do what I want. I'm going to fish all day. I'm going to golf all day. My ball team is finally going to win. Some people, some people have actually told me, if my dog is not going to be in heaven, I don't want to go. Now, folks, I understand that. I love my dogs. I've loved all the dogs we've had through the years. Dogs are not eternal beings. The point of heaven is to be with Jesus. Tim Keller reminds us that, that it's only in God's presence that we re realize our full potential. In other words, in heaven, we will finally be the people God made us to be. You are preparing for heaven here on earth. Now, this is the second part of the verse. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? Jesus is saying, look, I told you I'm going, I'm preparing something for you. Would I lie to you? I'm going to tell you why I'm not a very good father. When my youngest child, Sarah, was 18, she wanted a puppy. She was a senior in high school. I thought it was ridiculous. We had already had two dogs. And she was going to be going to college the next year, going off, which meant that if we got her a puppy, whose dog would it become? Okay, so we didn't need another dog, but she was insistent. She wanted a puppy. So as her birthday approached, I went to Walmart and bought a stuffed dog and a bed. If I was going to do it, I was going to do it right. On her birthday, I put that stuffed bed and that stuffed dog in that bed in the garage, and I came into the house and I said, Sarah, 
I've got a birthday present for you. It's in the garage. And she said, Daddy, what is it? And I said, it's a present. Is it a puppy? Honey, you'll have to go see. Now, I'm not lying, right? And she runs out into the garage, and she tears around listening for that puppy to whine. And of course, she can't hear anything because stuffed animals don't whine. And finally, she rounds the corner, and she sees that stuffed dog in that bed. And she looked at me and said, I hate you. Now, you would think over time she would forgive me, right? Just this year, she said to me, don't think that I haven't forgotten about that stuffed puppy. I'm going to have to go to therapy to get over that. Can you imagine your heavenly father doing that? No, he's a much better father than me. And that's why Jesus says, you think I would tell you something if it weren't true? Why would I mislead you? And, and he's actually challenging the disciples to think back their entire time together and to realize that every time Jesus has promised them something, he's kept his word. Now, let me, let me pause right here and do this insert. Sometimes people feel like God has broken his promise, but it's really a promise that they've made up for God. God didn't promise that. God keeps his promises. Now Jesus continues in verse three, and he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. These words are so familiar. We've forgotten the weight they carry. Jesus tells us he's prepared a place for us. This is the driving idea through these three verses. But then he tells us that he is the one who has to take us there. You do not get to go to heaven because you're a good person. You do not get to go to heaven because you're an American. You don't get to go to heaven because you go to church. You get to go to heaven because you're following Jesus. And in the process of following Jesus, you follow him all the way to the gates of heaven. People go to heaven because Jesus takes them there. And you notice how inclusive Jesus' words are. If you die, Jesus will be responsible for getting you to heaven. If you are alive when Jesus returns, then he will meet you in the air and he will lead you up to heaven. No matter when you live, Jesus is the one that leads you to heaven. And he goes back and finishes out verse three by saying that you also may be where I am. That's the point of heaven, being with God. Dallas Willard, Christian philosopher said this, if I walk with Jesus, I think when I die, it might take me some time to realize I'm dead. Isn't that amazing? To think about walking so closely with Jesus then you're so focused on him that when you die, it takes you a minute to realize, oh, this isn't earth anymore. Not because you've been focused on Jesus the whole time. I wanna be sure that you get this. Being with Jesus doesn't start in heaven. 
Doing life with Jesus starts here on earth. That's why we call it the with God life. Now, heaven is not the only option for people after you die. Christians believe there is a hell. Many people will say, well, I don't believe in hell. And you ask them why. And they will say, because a loving God would not send anyone to hell. Follow that up with this question. Do you believe Hitler is in heaven? And they will say, well, no. Then there must be an alternative. There has to be another place. Now, I believe in hell because Jesus believed in hell and he spoke about it. One example, Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. He, say, he will say to them, to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, now think what he's, Jesus is saying. There is a group of people who will go to hell because they have the value system of Satan and his angels. Now, what value system did Satan and his angels have? Don't you remember Satan didn't want to do life God's way? He persuaded a group of angels to do life with him instead of God. And God says, okay, if that's the way you want it, I'm not going to force you to stay here. What do you call a place where you force people to stay and give them no option to leave? Prison. God will not imprison anyone in his love. There are people who freely choose hell because they say, I want to be in control of my life. I want to do things my way. I want to have my own value system. And again, as Dallas Willard says, the only reason there is a hell is because God makes provision for what people want. And hell is simply the best God can do for some people. What makes hell so miserable? A lot of people think it's the flames and people debate back and forth. Well, is it the flames? Are they literal or figurative? I want to tell you what makes hell so miserable. Have you ever been with a bunch of people who are insistent on getting their way? And if they don't get their way, they will pitch a fit. You ever been with anybody like that? Ever been with a three-year-old? Ever been in a room of three-year-olds? Okay, they actually, some of them still have good features. But imagine, you, you've been with these self-absorbed people, and sometimes they can disguise their self-absorption. Hell is full of millions of people who are self-absorbed. They want to dictate the way things ought to be, and they insist that everybody see it their way. The way, reason that hell is so miserable is because everybody's arguing with one another about it being their way. Everybody's self-absorbed. Everybody's self-centered. There is no goodness. There is no joy. There is no happiness or faith or love. Hell is ultimately a self-centered place that goes on forever. That's why it's such a place of misery. I don't know if this is true, but one theologian proposed that maybe hell has a doorknob and you could leave, but nobody wants to because they would have to admit they were wrong. 
C.S. Lewis says, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. Now, if you are a person who says to God, thy will be done, you are seeking to follow Jesus with your whole heart. And yes, there's going to be setbacks and you're going to make some detours and you're probably going to get off track some, but in general, your life is pointed in the direction of Jesus. That means you're going to follow Jesus and you will follow him all the way to heaven. That means you dare not take your relationship with Jesus casually. You don't just say to Jesus, okay, I'll follow you when it's convenient. I will pick and choose which of your teachings I will do. It means you follow Jesus always. It means you understand that, that getting ready here on earth for eternity makes sense. Any of you ever tailgate? Okay, a couple of you, yeah, you can raise your hand, it's okay. I know people who tailgate, they start getting ready for a game on Saturday on Wednesday. Right, they start inviting people, hey, you gotta come to our tailgate. They start you know, getting all the snacks and getting all the food and making all the preparation. And, and these people who are getting ready for tailgate, you know, they make sure they get all the beer they need. Hey, we're in church, we're gonna be honest, right? And then game day comes and they're ready. Doesn't it make sense to get ready for heaven? Are you? Or are you just kind of cruising along? Let me tell you something else that really matters about this. It means you need to start your relationship with Jesus as soon as possible. And if you've not yet decided to follow Jesus, I implore you, begin now. You can decide today to ask Jesus to forgive your sins. You can decide today to commit to follow Jesus and you can start that preparation and you can start following Jesus today. Now, if you are the kind of person who says, my will be done, the first thing I wanna tell you is there is time to change your mind. There is time to change your mind and I hope you will. No surprise there, right? And you say, well, I'm not sure I want to change my mind. And I get that. Because whatever you're doing in life right now is working the way it's supposed to work. And it works enough for you that you feel pretty content. But here's what I know. God has made you to have an eternal awareness of life. And one day, that's going to hit you. Someone's going to die you're gonna face your own death and you're gonna to have to grapple with these questions. So even if you don't believe in God or even if you don't believe in heaven, how about praying? You say, well, I don't believe in prayer. It doesn't matter, pray anyway. And ask God to show you that he is real and that eternity is real. And I believe if you pray a prayer like that, God will make you aware of him and will make you aware of the eternal dimension of your life. 
Now, we're going to talk about a third option that most people are afraid to talk about. And most people hope is true. And according to people who research this, about 50% of Americans live this way. 50% of Americans who claim to believe in Jesus. The third option goes like this. I want enough of Jesus to go to heaven, but not enough to change my life. I want enough of Jesus to go to heaven, help me out here on earth. I just don't want him to be messing around in my stuff. See, because most of us actually get it, that if you follow Jesus, he's gonna identify some part of your life that needs to change. Not because he's a bully or he's mean, but because he is aware that part of your character is toxic. And it needs to die. And that's gonna take some hard work on your part. You're gonna have to accept that. You're gonna have to talk to him. He's gonna have to do some work in your life. But he, you know what herbicide is? Grass killer? I think God has some Holy Spirit herbicide that he can spray on that toxic stuff in your soul and change you. The third option though, most people, they just don't wanna take Jesus too seriously. They wanna live by their own way. They wanna spend their time and money the way they want. They want to cling to their own prejudices, their own assumptions, and their own ambitions. So I just want to ask you, do you think this third way is actually real? Does it work? Maybe if I put it in this context. Imagine you're married, and your spouse says to you, look, I'm gonna come home when I wanna come home. I'm gonna keep my paycheck for myself, I'm gonna spend it on what I wanna spend it on. I expect you to be at my beck and call. I get to dictate the rules in this relationship. I get to tell you what's right and what's wrong. I'm gonna be in control of you, but you're not gonna be in control of me. How many of you would sign up for a marriage like that? A couple of you are looking at each other and saying, I think that's the way we're married. Okay, that's a different sermon. Why would you think God would sign up for a relationship like that? Where he's the doormat and you're the foot. You think God is that emotionally dysfunction, dysfunctional? I don't think so. The third way is non-existent. It's not an option. It is either following Jesus Christ or following yourself. That is the only two ways. The apostle Paul warned us about this. He said in Galatians chapter six, verses seven and eight, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Those verses are plain enough, I don't need to explain them. 
If you're living your life by your own terms, you are going to sow destruction, and that's what you'll reap. And if you live your life to please the Spirit, in other words, following Jesus, you are going to reap eternal life, the life you were meant to live. Now, the question is, what are you sowing? What are you reaping? And, and, and kind of break this out a little bit. If you're in your 20s and 30s, in your teens, it's a time of sowing. You're sowing stuff. Check and see what the seed is that you're sowing and what it produces. I heard Andy Stanley tell this story about a woman who graduated from college, moved to Atlanta, lived a pretty uh, wild life. And she was talking to her mama and uh, said, you know, I just hope one day I can meet a good guy and settle down and, and, you know, life will be good. And her mother said to her, honey, I don't know how to tell you this, but a man like that doesn't want a girl like you. And you know what? It was true. It's true. She didn't realize what she was sowing. She didn't realize what she was going to reap. So I think one of the bravest prayers you can pray is, goes like this, Heavenly Father, what am I sowing? What am I reaping? What are you sowing? What are you reaping? What's eternity going to look like for you? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, you have put eternity in our hearts. And so for everyone who doesn't know Jesus, my prayer first is that they will become aware of what they're sowing and what they're going to reap, and they today would choose to follow Jesus. And Father, I want to pray for people who are your followers, but God, we're not taking our relationship with you seriously enough. Help us to get that, make that connection, and actually follow Jesus. And so, Father, make us all aware of sowing and reaping in eternity. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.